Pezzavalli. Hi, Patrick Hines. Hey, fam. Happy holidays. Hey, happy merry everything, as I like to say. Merry everything. This is one of the like two times a year I think we do now where we take a week off to celebrate with and be with our family. Yeah. So we're dropping in the regular feed uh, episode one of a Patreon series we just covered, which I was obsessed with. Everyone yeah. was talking about this when this came out. Yeah, it's called Never Let Him Go. It's on Hulu. Yes. It's a wild story. It's a, a man named Scott Johnson who is an American that was living in Australia and he his body was found at the bottom of a cliff and mm-hmm. it was did he die by suicide or was he murdered and his brother Steve who was like his best friend goes on this 30 year like journey for the truth crusade, kind of thing. crusade. to figure out what happened yeah. and fam I will tell you we get an answer we do. in the four episodes we get an answer it's one of the greatest series we've done yeah it is really complicated but really interesting and really sad it's like a lesson in a whole lot of things yeah. it's really good so all four episodes are available right now ad free over on the Patreon it's where you can get over 450 full bonus episodes you get one every week that's right yeah uh, starting in January we're adding drag bingo once a month that's right uh, we're doing other like a mixology class there's a lot going on on the pates uh, patreon.com slash true crime obsessed or go to our website click on the Patreon link yeah it's all there waiting for you yeah. and we love you enjoy episode one of never let him go yes enjoy it everyone uh, girl, Aaron just texted me uh, something, and he says, in case you need a cold open. Do you want me to read it? Sure. It's a picture of an alligator, and it says, <laughs> alligators can live up to 100 years, which is why there is an increased chance that they will see you later. They will, in fact, see, see you, you later. later. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> Julian Pensavale. Patrick Hines. Burn up. God, we sound worse and worse every time. Yeah, it's getting We've bad. We've been recording a lot. It's true. I'm slap happy yeah, from it's, recording. It's, I feel not, you know, when you're like, am I real? I know. <laughs> What's going on here? I feel like I'm going to trip over things. I know. I'm going to drop things. I'm feeling very clumsy. Uh, girl, what are we talking about today? Very, very highly requested. Yeah. Uh, Never Let Him Go on Hulu. It's four episodes. This is episode one. For 30 years, my brother's death was his mystery. Did he trip? Was he pushed? Did he kill himself? There's no way to undo it. <laughs> Try it. Scott was shy, gentle, and ridiculously smart. Guy was fearless all of his life. But this person that I knew better than anybody else, I didn't know as well as I thought I did. He came out to both of us, and I was scared. I knew people who were gay. I knew people who had been beaten. I thought he would be an easy target. Scott decided he moved to Australia. It didn't really cross my mind that he could get into trouble. There's been some human remains found at the bottom of North Head, and the body was naked. I get a phone call telling me that Scott has died. We've had some chilling evidence. We've got 97 persons of interest. What are the police waiting for? All of these things just keep snowballing. It's about finding justice for my brother. Sometimes you just have to stir the pot. Couple of things to say right up top. Sure. Uh, this was highly requested also by me, and yeah. you were such an angel to like switch all the schedule around so Look, we could throw we, it I, in. I want to give the people what they want, including you. Me, thank you so much. So I, Natalie and I got it done. I watched all four eps in my hotel room in St. Paul. Yeah. I want to just go in the record and say, we've said this before, I've never seen a four-part documentary about an LGBTQ person. Yeah, and focusing on hate crimes yep. and the fact that they do in fact exist. Also, it's wild that so many documentaries who were filmed in the pandemic are coming out now. 
now. I know. So we're seeing so many masks in courtrooms. Uh-huh. It's it's like a time machine. For yeah, me. and it's we're at that point where it's like okay, we're at the end of 2023, and it's like oh 2020. Like that yeah. still feels like, like it feels like a ago. lifetime ago, but a minute ago too. So these dates are a it's, lot of these dates are recent, even though we go back in time. Anyway, time is a construct. The last thing I want to say, I love that this series starts at the end so that we know it's solved. Yeah, because there's he, so many moments of like this is never going to be solved. We're never going to know what happened. Right. There is a resolution to this. Yeah, so this is the murder of Scott Johnson, and it, we learn like it's a 30 year mystery, but we start with a judge reading a sentencing. Yes, so I'm like, exactly. Oh, so shit. it gets solved. So we're here with all of his friends and family. This story yeah. is so much about Scott, obviously. It's, of course, about Scott, but it's also about his family and the fight that they went through. I mean, I guess I'll just say it now. I have a little bit complicated feelings because this is a family of immense wealth yes. and resources yes. and connections, like, like political <laughs> connections. And so it's like the only, really, the only reason this gets solved is because the brother who's the crusader here, his name is Steve, is a 10 times millionaire. Right, and has a lot of connections. And they're just like fancy white people from New England. Yes, and uh, they're very smart and they seem like good people but it's a little bit like whoa and it's even like it even took them 30 years to get some kind of closure or some kind of answer so like it just sucks that privilege does get you very far but it's still an uphill battle no matter what and that you have to have privilege even to get in the door it's crazy crazy. well we open in Cambridge Massachusetts we're with Steve who's Scott's brother he's in a god bless this mess attic if ever I've seen one so there are 20 times more um, where this came from this is Scott and me and the Matterhorn. Scott's CV, all of his grade point averages are near perfect. His publications, there is a lot, yes. So it's Steve and Scott. Scott is our victim and Steve is the brother who's like leading this whole crusade, right? Yeah. And Steve is like going through Scott's papers because he just has them in his attic. And like he's going through his publications, his equations, his pictures. Steve at one point goes, oh, this is the computer program that resulted in pictures of the surface of Venus. Yeah. Like the le- the, the next level, level brain yeah. of the two of them. Like, yes. oh, because Steve's like, oh, there are like 20,000 more of these. He's talking about all of their academic accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Like they were in the newspaper for solving equations and shit. Like these are real. And you see them written out longhand. Yeah. A lot of these are written in pencil. Steve's like, look, mathematical scattering laws. Who knew? And I'm like, not me. I certainly didn't know Steve. Say that again. (laughs) Mathematical scattering laws? Scattering laws. No, no, no. I did not know. But then we see, we also see Scott's death certificate and Steve reads it to us. Died of the effects of multiple injuries which he sustained when he jumped. And Steve goes, I think we need to have that updated. So the whole story from the very beginning was that Scott had killed himself. He was found at the bottom of a cliff in Australia mm-hmm. and the story is that he jumped to his death. He was found naked. We'll get into the whole thing. Right. But the family never believed it. No. And they were all from day one trying to get to the bottom of what they say like what really happened. Yeah. And so Steve the brother tells us about their family. They grew up in Southern California. Scott was the youngest. Steve's in the middle and their sister Terry was the oldest. And like they had very young parents. The mom had sister Terry when she was 18. Yeah. Very young. And there's a photo of the siblings at Pismo Beach and you know what I thought of immediately? What, how did you know it was Pismo Beach. Did the Beatles tell you? <laughs> no, Steve told me. <laughs> you know everything about the Beatles. I mean, you do every single thing. Real, they're good. I know. <laughs> Sue me. No, I'm just saying. You're like, I could, I guess, hold my own in a conversation. Well, I don't, Did but... you know that John was born on? <laughs> it was a Tuesday. I just, I know that people are very protective over them. I don't want to come in and act like I'm a know-it-all about the Beatles. Yeah. But like. We did an episode on the Beatles, fam. I, I don't know if it's come out yet. Lennon, but on the time murder you... of John Lennon. Yeah. 
Anyway. Um, anyway. The mom met the dad while he was popping popcorn in a Los Angeles movie theater. Like, tell me that's not like a fucking great origin story. It's the notebook all over again, basically. Oh, is that right? No, but I just, okay. maybe, it's like that kind of love. Um, and they're like both just beautiful. Like, you see a picture of them from when they were like, yeah, the dad ends up being a dirtbag, but like. Total nightmare. He, but like, but. Oh yeah, he, fuck that. Take back the notebook. Okay. <laughs> also, isn't the notebook problematic too? God damn it. <laughs> we can't have anything. Wait, can I just say my Pismo thing though? Oh, sure. When they said Pismo Beach, I was like, the, the first thing I thought of was clueless immediately because oh. Cher's like the captain of the Pismo Beach disaster relief. Oh, really? And her father, she's like taking the skis and he's like, I don't think they need our skis, Cher. And she's like, Daddy, some people lost all their belongings. Don't you think that includes athletic equipment? <laughs> That's the, when I heard Pismo Beach, I was oh, like, for the disaster God. relief? That was a fake disaster they made up for Clueless. And that, I love it. Anyway. Well, Steve tells us that. My sister and I think of our childhood in two parts. There was before divorce and after divorce. When I was 10, my dad essentially disappeared. He didn't send child support. He didn't talk to us. The mom had to be the sole breadwinner, and she had no work experience to speak of. So she's working hard, but also like Scott and Steve had three paper routes between them. They started at 3 a.m. before school. They're and getting then up it, before me. And then, I know, no one gets up before you. You wake up at 4 a.m. You're so busy heading to work at the steel mill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uphill both ways, Chief. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you forgot that it's uphill both ways. In the snow. It's in snowing the snow. all the time. Freezing. It's snowing constantly. Um, Scott and Steve are working these paper routes. Routes or routes? Routes. Routes. I say routes. Okay, fine. <laughs> Why'd you ask? I don't know. Because <laughs> I say it wrong, probably. No. Uh, but they're like, you know, they're working their butts off to help their mom. And then like, they also had a great relationship. Like they love superheroes and they make up their own. The were, two brothers have yeah, the great relationship. They were like Flyman and Bosco. Yeah. And they just adored each other. Well, they had to because we learned that there was like a lot of tension in the house. Yeah. Because like the kids had to grow up really fucking fast. Yeah. And we learned that like when Scott was in kindergarten, he comes home with a note attached to his shirt. And the parents are all excited about it. It and the we're not gonna say, is, yeah, this is before the divorce. By this the way. is before the divorce. We're not gonna say what Steve says, but they say the R word, they say the R word because uh. Scott is a kind of a quiet genius. I married yeah. one of those, uh-huh. I understand that they're socially awkward, but because he's socially awkward, his teacher thinks that he's like developmentally disabled and it wonders why he was sent to like a school not for kids, like, like quote that. with the normal kids, I, exactly. And it's like, hey, dummy teacher, Scott's a math genius, and like these are the teacher's reasons. This is why this is all, bullshit, yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Scott. God didn't like tying his shoes. I know someone else who refuses to tie their shoes. I'm looking right at her. <laughs> you. I hate it. Don't talk about it. Don't, don't mention don't, it. If my shoes are untied, I fucking know it. They're untied no. right now, and I haven't said a word. Is that right? Nobody walks around without their shoes untied. I no, told we... you what. I think we've maybe told the story. I told you once. I was like, hey, oh, your shoes. We were at the airport or something oh, where no. you can like get them caught and something. Yeah. And I told you, and you were like, yeah, I know. I um, That's <laughs> how I want them. And like, that's just something. I was like, got it. Yeah, Heard. yeah, yeah. yeah. Heard, <laughs> chef. Heard. <laughs> Uh, it's just a weird like people have weird things yeah I know people who like want to walk with their like backpack open okay that's great but you do you you tell me once I will never mention it again but Scott also liked to like tie his sweater around his neck because he thought it was a cape he's just like a funny quirky kid who's kind of quiet teacher didn't have any idea of what I was really going on with my brother um he was quite a bit more brilliant than they had imagined. This teacher made a lot of assumptions. Maybe, like, ask Scott why you don't like your shoe. You know what I mean? Like, totally. Because the teacher assumed that he couldn't tie his shoes. Right. And that really wasn't the case. And, like, oh, well, a kid in kindergarten is doing a superhero thing exactly. with the cape? Exactly. Oh, I like, know. this teacher sucks. And then Steve tells us that mom eventually found a man that moved in with us. He was an alcoholic. 
And he was very rough with him and Scott. Yeah. Steve says we were a little too girly for his taste, which we're going to find out later that Scott is gay. Like, what a nightmare to grow up with a guy like that. And Steve has a quote like, oh, you need to act like a man. Like, whatever. I don't subscribe to that. No. And, like, it all culminates in a, he calls it a volcanic argument between Steve and the boyfriend. And the mom throws her son out in favor of the boyfriend. Because Scott, our victim, sunk into this depression because he hated living in this atmosphere. And, like, why wouldn't you? So Steve defends Scott. And Steve... Steve and the boyfriend get in this major, major fight, and the mom tells Steve, the brother who's defending Scott, our victim, that he has to leave. Yeah. Which meant that Scott is now stranded with this horrible guy. Exactly. And all of this is just to show us why Steve and Scott were so close, because they had to be. And they're also, like, on a level of brilliance that most people aren't. So when you have someone else that you can, I'm assuming I don't have that problem, (laughs) finding people who are on my level, level like, I'm fine with that. Uh, Surrounded by everything. Surrounded. No, no, no. It's very super (laughs) mediocre at best. But I can imagine when you have a brain capacity like that, it's kind of hard to find people you can have conversations with. And like, there's one born in your family. Like, come on. So that, of course, with all of the trauma and abuse they suffer. And like, they say that Scott's real genius comes out in high school. And Sister Terry is like, I remember one time mom had a pickup truck with a camper shell on it. The boys were sitting on either side of me talking about the theory of relativity. And I'm like... I couldn't even get involved with the conversation. And so Scott gets accepted to Caltech, and Steve says that's probably the hardest college in America to get into. And but, Scott was like, give me something hard to study. Right. So he finds it easy, and they say that this is like a whole new world for him because he like left this like abusive, brutal life of like getting in trouble for not doing chores to going to a place where people thought that he was amazing. Yeah, he starts to thrive. Yes. He's finding friends and people. Like Again, he's like surrounded by like-minded people, yes. pun intended, I guess. Or yeah. no pun intended. So it's all like everything's coming up, Scott. Like it's going great. And Steve is right down the road at USC. So their schools are near each other. They're spending a ton of time together. He's like, we were both shy and nerdy. Like yeah. they just loved being around each other. And now we meet Rosemary Torres Johnson, who's Steve's wife and Scott's sister-in-law. And she basically goes by Rose. Yeah. And she's fucking awesome. And she says, like, yes, they spent a lot of time together. It wasn't like a package deal necessarily. Yeah. But like, guess what? It all works out great because Rose and Scott developed their own amazing relationship. Right. There's only a two-year age gap between everyone. Yes. It's like they are just happy as clams. And they she's say. so they're like a threesome. And Rose is like, it was kind of my role to like pull Scott out of it. Cause he would just go along with whatever Steve wanted to do. And He's Rose super was like shy. No, my role was to be like, no, Scott, what restaurant do you want oh, to right. go to? It can't just be like the Stephen Rose show. Right, right, right. So remember how their dad bailed growing up? It turns out that he moved to Colorado and starts a brand new family. And he has a daughter named Becca. So Steve and Scott and Terry have a half-sister. And they learn about Becca when they're like adults and she's like 10. And they all become obsessed with each other. Yeah, so Steve takes a trip to see his dad seven years after he left the family, which yeah. must have been a super hard trip to make. Yes. And he did it, like, for the sake of Becca, I think. Yes. You know? So this is when they all meet for the first time, and she is in love with her cool older brothers. Because they're so much older, I just idolize them. Like, Steve and Scott would have these stories of these amazing adventures. They'd be hiking mountains and have some crazy story about coming down in the dark in a town. Oh, I guess we're going to start crying at the beginning. Um, Scott, 
like definitely was shy and gentle and quiet and that felt really good to me and she goes he was wonderful and I was pretty annoying She's I'm like, sure I'm sure I was super but they were nice to her and they like let her I don't want to use the term tag along but no. that's what you know like they just accepted her and she idolized them they're the cool older brothers who are like smart and fun it's so weird like we just covered a dateline that's coming out in a couple weeks about like this family that was just fighting all the time and it was just know, always God. drama like all of the siblings in this family seem to just fucking love yeah. each other because Becca's here now she's yeah. a grown up she's younger than them by like 10 or 15 years or whatever but she like just like loved her brothers yeah. and also Rose Steve's wife also loves Becca yeah. and could easily have just seen her as like an annoying like she's basically like, like another a seven kid. year old little sister exactly like, like I didn't sign up for this no 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 everyone's super in love no so Scott and Steve both go to graduate school Scott goes to Cambridge in London and Steve goes to Harvard so this is the first time that they were like really far away from each other and Scott is like writing Steve letters and Steve was like his first semester was awful it was yeah. kind of dark and sad but by the second semester he was happier I can't figure out why he met a boy yeah he's like oh he's in the middle of the social scene yeah. and he made this really good friend named Michael Noon yeah. and Michael is Australian <laughs> And he's getting his PhD in 15th century Spanish music. These people. I, like, 15th how, century. Now, I How lo- much do you have to love 15th, 15th century, century Spanish, Spanish music. music? How would you even know what it sounds like? You study it. I, I you yes. get your PhD in it. I'm just saying, like, what? and then what do you do with that? I would think maybe he becomes a professor or he works in, like, a, he's, like, a curator. Yeah. Or he just, like, is a researcher, mm-hmm. I, I would think. Imagine, like, you're just so fascinated by that that you want to go get your fucking I, yeah. PhD or whatever I at love Cambridge. It. It's not my thing, but, Michael, I, I love that. It's yours. Find your thing, everyone. Find he, your 15th thing. century Spanish music. Good on you, Mike. Good on you, Right? Mike. Like, wow. Totally. And just to find, like, it's so specific. It's like, how, when did you discover that you loved how it? How did you discover it? Right? Like, were you going to be like an accountant? And then right. one day you heard something and you were like, oh, Mom, stop everything. Dad, I have to tell I you. I have to tell you something. I love 15th century Spanish music. And I love it. It's my life it's now. It's my life now. Like, I just, I love people <laughs> who are in really, really specific. Yes careers or jobs or interests like Michael Howe I know I know you're, like, you're probably the world's greatest scholar on it did you wake up one day and you're like you know what I've always wondered about totally. 15th century Spanish music oh god I'm so stupid so <laughs> you know he goes so Scott goes through Cambridge life is good at the end of it he finishes the program and he comes back to LA late one night uh, we were walking around downtown Los Angeles over in the meatpacking district and he's struggling to tell me something and he's really struggling and the only thing I could imagine was he got someone pregnant and so I guessed that I said and you got her pregnant and he says it wasn't a her I'm gay Michael Noon, his best friend, he fell in love with Michael. So Michael and Scott are a couple. But it's interesting because Steve says, my first thought was, this person that I thought I knew better than anyone else, I didn't know as well as I thought I did. Yeah. And, you know, Rosemary, who is the wife and sister-in-law, and she was super nervous about this because she... She loves him and supports him, but she even says, like, I wasn't like, yay, Scott's gay, because she was nervous. Because she had gay friends and she saw them get beat up and she was scared for Scott. She said she thought he would be an easy target. I'm sorry, she dated this one 
guy who exclusively lived in a house full of gay men. Yeah. I said, more on that story, more please. More on that. Where are they? She said her and Steve took a break from dating. She started dating this other straight guy who lived in a house right. only full of gay men. And that's her whole experience. That's her whole experience. But and she says something. I don't think she means it. I love her. They've all been through a lot. But yeah. she says, like, this isn't my brother-in-law. And I'm like, but it is, though. Yes. Like, this is really Scott. Well, he because, was hiding the whole time. Yes. Because right? she's saying, I love this quote, because they're such smart, like, nerdy, you know, mathy, yeah. booky people. She's like, all I know is that all of a sudden Scott started going out to bars. To bar- bum, bum. <laughs> That's not my brother-in-law. Yeah. And it's just Have so- a chip and live, Rose. I love you. Come on. I love you. Have a chip and live, Rose. Rose. Loving you. Um, but also, like, this is the early 80s. It's the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Sure. Everybody's very worried about that. Yeah. You know, Rose is very worried about promiscuity. It's true. It's all very scary. And so Scott is so in love with Michael that he met in Cambridge, but yeah. Michael is Australian, that Scott moves to Australia to be with him, which yeah. is like, they thought that, like, Harvard and Cambridge was far away, like Australia. So this is, like, a major adjustment for Scott's family because they were really intertwined. Yeah, which is kind of, and I was wondering, like, why doesn't he come to the U.S.? Were laws better in Australia? I don't really know. Yeah, I guess Michael had a life and a job. I don't know. It just seems like And, like, was... who doesn't want to live in Australia for a little while if he can? You know what I mean? Well, we learn, though. We meet um, Eamon O'Brien. Yes. Who is a, quote, math colleague, but also gay. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, a math colleague? This is just a world. I know. And I am a guest in this world. I, 100%. <laughs> I love because it. Because what's happening is that we're going to Canberra, Australia, which is, right. like, where this town is that Scott and Michael are going to live. Scott is going into a grad math program like you just can't get enough degrees you just can't you just can't you can never get enough like this guy maybe Iman, there's maybe it's the booming 15th century spanish totally. music scene <laughs> that must be what it is there's like two jobs for, totally. for michael in this moment oh my god you gotta take it so iman is saying that like there's a small group of graduate students in the department and one of the Interesting features in the 1980s were the three of us were gay men. Which I think in that world probably feels like a big ratio. Yeah. You know, and it was, you know it's nice to have a friend. And so Scott was like a really nice, quiet person. And Eamon's like, he certainly wasn't a loud American. If, if I, I can, can use, use that, that expression. And I'm like, sure you can, Eamon. <laughs> you absolutely can. Are you kidding me? A thousand percent. Uh, we meet Neil, another yep. friend. He's also gay. I said the third math gay? The third math gay. Math colleagues. Yes. And he's like, we had lots of dinner parties, but we didn't talk about like sex and gay stuff as often as people think. We talked about like world issues and music and how good the local wine is. I'm like, to be fair, that's all pretty that's gay. That's pretty gay. I pretty literally gay. said, he goes, and whether the local wine was good enough or not. And I said, so kind of about that's gay good, stuff. That's gay stuff. Pretty gay. Like, let's not discriminate against gay stuff. <laughs> gay stuff is gay stuff. It doesn't have to be butt stuff to be gay. 100%. You like, guys are, you're chatting about if the local wine is up to your standards. And like world issues. Neil, exactly. While you're sipping like, oh, I don't know if the Chianti is up to par. Like, you're, it's pretty gay. Listening to 15th century Spanish music. Like, please. You, know, you guys are pretty gay. Like, you're pretty gay. And we say that as a compliment. Exactly. So this Canberra town, it shuts down at five o'clock. Like there's really not yeah. much going on. Everyone, every, Scott says in a letter, everyone's a white public servant. Boring. <laughs> Where are all the fun people? So apparently they're in Sydney. So Scott loves going to yeah. Sydney on the weekends. He was also like working there half the time. Well, because he doesn't have like a sponsor at his college here. He finds a sponsor at the college in Sydney. So it gives him a reason to commute back and forth. He's like spending a lot of time in Sydney. We see a TV report that tells us Sydney, for gays, is rapidly becoming the San Francisco of the 
Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, it was like a growing gay community. Gay bars, gay saunas, gay football teams. Yeah. It's like a whole scene, and that's great. And there's like a significant gay male culture in Sydney. It feels very much like New York or San Francisco at the same time. Yeah. So now it's 1988, and Scott returns to Cambridge, Massachusetts for the summer, and he stays with Steve and Rosemary. We had a little apartment. It was a one-bedroom with a living room and a German shepherd. And I was really pregnant. And, you know, they're just like domestic life. Pasta down. This is a little slice of American life. Come on. Yeah. So we would play games and go for walks and listen to music. And it was just really fun. And then Becca came. Becca comes and she was like 10 or 11 and she's so excited. And Rosemary, like she's describing it as like, it was tight, but it was fun. It was like, fun. Like we were on top of each other, but it was so great. And they're like, we were just nerdy. And just yeah. like, you know what I mean? The fit, like, cause like Becca. Lots of Scrabble, lots of computer. Totally. Cause Becca coming, she isn't like your sister coming. It's like your friend's kid coming. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But you, you could tell she's cool. Like she, she could hold her own. Ahead no one's of her like, years. Oh, like, where's Becca? Is the stove on? Like she's not that young. She <laughs> no, like, can hold her own. They say that about me. Steve does not let me wander into the kitchen. Please. God hot, forbid. Hot, 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 hot. <laughs> That's what you say to kids, right? Ooh, hot, hot, yeah. hot. Um, Steve also, Steve the brother, had a camcorder and was filming Everything. Everything. Which is how we have, that's how these documentaries get made, I'm telling you. They've got Tons decades and decades of old footage. But they tell this really sweet story, like, of course they had a computer, and Becca didn't have one at her yeah. house. So Steve and Scott program a computer game for Becca. It's yeah. the sweetest and nerdiest thing like, I've ever heard. So I love it. so cutting edge. I It'd be like it. today having AI make your breakfast every single day and or something. Have, you know what I mean? We like see it. It's like Becca's game. Yes. It's like for Becca. Yep. How fucking cool. And it meant the world to her. It made her feel so like loved and included. Steve says that like he and Scott started working on like math shit together that summer. <laughs> he said that summer we cooked up a computer program that would solve any problem. That was our grand plan. And I was like, wait. Like real world problems or like long division? I think we're talking about math, but okay. it doesn't matter because Is that Steve a calculator? Said, I'm sorry. I know. No, I, I agree. But he says we didn't get very far with that because he died. So they were like actively working on something that really could have changed. I, I get the sense yes. from Steve that like this kind of could have changed the way we live. 100%. So it's five months later. It's five months after this like fun visit for the summer, yeah, right? It's December 1988. December. And we're in Sydney. We meet Troy Hardy. He's a former police officer. I've been a police officer since May of 19. 1984, so I'd been in approximately four and a half years. I remember at some stage, exact time I can't recall, I was sitting there answering the switch, fingerprinting baddies, and the news was passed on to me by a fellow police officer that there's been some human remains found at the bottom of North Head. North Head is a cliff. Right. And this is Scott's body that they find. And the cops get there and they find a male, 20s, 30s, it's Scott, head injuries that were consistent with a falling. He was completely naked, which Troy tells us is incredibly unusual. There's actually only been one other body found at that exact location also naked. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Seems like a pattern to me. There was another. I know. So this is super weird. It never happens. Only it happened before. Twice. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Okay. So Troy says the remains had been there at least a few days. And he says, like, normally these bodies land head first and have extensive damage to the head area. 
But this body had extensive damage around the lower body area, which is consistent with him having landed like on his feet. Right. And so at the same time, like because Scott's body was there for a few days, there was a major storm in Sydney yes. and it washed away all the blood and DNA and like anything that could possibly be helpful in this investigation, gone. And Troy is saying so that includes any evidence of a third party having been there. Right. There were no footprints of any kind right. and they removed the body via helicopter. So Troy goes to the top of the cliff where this body would have come off of. And he says, when we got up there, we found it a pile of neatly folded clothing. Yeah. There was also a bus ticket and a few other things that led them to an address in Canberra. Scott's ID was like very prominently, kind of like perfectly placed, placed on, top. on these folded clothes. So Troy, the cop, calls the phone number and the man who answers said that Scott was his partner. And Troy says, that indicated to me that they were gay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Shocking. Um, so, you know, Michael Noon says, you know, Scott was smart and kind and friendly. Yes. And he also tells the police that Scott had suicidal ideations and that he might have tried to take his own life in the past. Like, this is something that, that we're hearing about this for the very first time. And yeah. Michael is not here. Right. So we're just hearing from the police that Michael says that there was some suicidal ideation happening with Scott. That is in Sydney. So same time, exact same days, we're cutting back to Newport Beach to be with Steve and Rose. They don't know yet that Scott is dead, but they're about to find right. out. Right. And Steve is running a marathon, to which I say, Steve, aren't you tired? Don't you just want to be lazy and eat chips on the couch and watch a marathon and not run a marathon? But he's also giving Rose shit for only running an 11-minute mile. Okay. We're not doing this. I was like, Whoa, we are not going to do this being at all. Real hard on her about it. I was like, Steve, I, I'm on your side mostly here, Steve. This is not okay. They're uh, busting chops. Yeah, I guess. Rose tells us, I'm not quite sure why he felt this urgency to go check our voicemail, but he was taking a very long time. And I said to my um, mom and dad, I said, I'm going to go in and see if everything's okay. Rosemary eventually comes in. Um, uh, to find out what's wrong. And I, I said, well, Michael wants me to call him and I'm glad you're here because I need to call him and this doesn't sound like good news. Yeah, so like the tone is bad enough that he wants his wife in the room yeah. when they're having this conversation. And so Steve calls back and Michael, the boyfriend's dad, answers the phone and he's hysterical and he's the person who tells Steve that his brother Scott is dead. And like Rosemary and Steve just collapse into each other and they're just like, there it's is devastating. No, yeah, like, there's no worse news they could possibly have gotten than that. This like sweet, gentle. Soul I mean, Rose needs a dead. break from filming. Like the yeah. minute they bring it up, it's all still right there. I think because they fought this fight for 30 years, yes. that, like they still haven't processed what happened because it took so long yep. to happen. So you know, everything changed. They said they couldn't imagine a bigger loss. And now Steve has to go to Australia and they're struggling so much financially that Steve has to borrow money from his professor and like his wife, Rosemary, can't even go. Because like she's the only one working. Right. And they have like a baby. A like, brand new baby, like, Emma. They, yeah. They need to, she needs to be home. And so that's devastating for her though, right? So Steve gets there and Michael, the boyfriend, picks him up at the airport and it hits Steve that in all the time... Scott, his brother and best friend, has been there. He's never come out to visit. He only made it out to Australia because his brother died. Right. And he is like the guilt is setting in that like, oh, God, I was so far away. And I've been I so busy. My wife just had a baby. And like, you know, we say this to Steve and everyone else. Like, it's you're not your fault. It's OK. Of, I mean, life happens. Yes. What were you, you were going to get. It's like you can't. No. It's so easy to get to that place in your brain. You know, yep. like, well, if I was visiting this week, then maybe. Like, exactly. No, no, no. Don't go there. I'm sitting in Canberra which is the capital city three hours away from where Scott died, and I realized I want to go talk to the police. So I said, let's drive up 
to Sydney, to the town where Scott died. He basically just marches into the police station and he meets Troy Hardy, the cop that we met earlier in the episode. <laughs> and Steve's vibe is like, he was nice enough, I guess. Well, like, to camera to us today. Yeah, because he says, like, he was very friendly, but, like, th- if there was an investigation, they wrapped up what happened to Scott very fast. Like, Steve walks in to be like, let's get to the bottom of this. And two minutes into the conversation, Steve's like, oh. You've already closed the case. This, okay, so we're coming at this two very different And ways. he says, like, did you investigate it at all? What were his last movements? Did you talk to his friend? Where's his wallet? Yeah. He always had his wallet. Where is it? Is there a note? Like, what about his phone records? Have you asked around the neighborhood? And Troy was like, why would I do any of that? This was a suicide. Because Troy says, we talked to his professor and his partner. Oh, and by the way, did you know that your brother was gay? And yes. oh, by the way, by the way, did you know that where we found his body is a common place for people to go to kill themselves? Right. And especially homosexuals, which your brother was one, in case you didn't know. So he's citing, this has never happened, a naked body at the bottom of this. Except it happened, happened last before. week again. And so now this guy is saying this is like a place where people go to die by suicide, gay men specifically. Yeah. And immediately we're like, I'm sorry, what? Right. What the fuck? What is that? None of this makes sense. You, you hear yourself, right, yeah. Troy? Like, what's yeah. going on? I mean, can I just say now, we're going to learn later that, like, while this is happening, while Steve is literally sitting in this guy's office, mm-hmm. we don't get this in this episode, but it's good to point out here, there is a spate of gay men being killed yes. all over the fucking country. Yeah. And, like, the evidence is right there if Troy would just look for it. He just doesn't want to look for it. And also, like, just to be fair and say everything, the cops say, and by the way, your brother's partner told us, the cops, about this time that Scott almost jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Yes. Apparently there was a previous episode. Steve had never heard this before. Again, Michael's not here. Yeah. But the cops are saying, like, I don't know what you, like, this is kind of a common place. Apparently your brother had some experience with this. Like, what do you want us to do? And, And there is, like, other things. Like, it looks like he folded his clothes neatly and he put his ID on top so that we be able to like, easily identify no the body. No struggle right. or whatever. So, I mean, this is a lot to digest. But the, they also are the ones who tell us that it rained for three straight days and right. it would have washed away any evidence. So it's like, you got to do a little bit. Of, I get it. I hear what you're saying, but do a little bit of work here. Sure. Because if they just picked up the newspaper, they'd see that gay men are being killed all over the place. Yeah, but that's gross. I know. Gay else. stuff. Um, so Steve, the brother, and Troy, the cop, go to the location. Yes. Which is apparently very, very close to the police station. Three minutes away. I start looking around to see if there's a note that anyone missed. And then I started wondering whether it was something someone did on purpose. Was there an altercation? Did they get into a fight? Did he push him? And it was pouring rain and the sun was setting, so they didn't really have a lot of time. And eventually the cop is like, well, that's it. Sorry again for your loss. Like, I get, like we're done with this, right? Moving yeah. on. Yeah, and this is where Troy says that, like, he's saying today, my original finding of suicide was done in good faith and based on the evidence at the scene. Ah, or, or, or rather, lack of evidence presented at the scene. Right. You know, and again, he was found naked at the bottom of the cliff with his clothes folded neatly on the top, the ID clearly visible so people could identify the body. It's like, fine, I understand yeah. what you're saying, Troy. The previous experiences with suicidal thoughts and then, like, zero forensic evidence, which he's like, that's a pro. And I'm like, no, that's a con. I know. That's and not... also just pick up the paper. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. So we also meet Johan, who's the forensic pathologist. Yes. And he says that the autopsy was approached as a suicide from the beginning. From the beginning. They weren't looking at anything else. But he also says, it's not my job as the coroner to, like, determine how this person died. I'm just here to sort of say, like, what I can tell you about the body. Yeah, two things about that. One, he's like, it isn't my job to solve crimes. And I'm like, is that the true crime equivalent to the reality show of, like, Uh I'm not here to make friends. Like, everyone (laughs) calm down. And two, he goes, yeah, you know, it's not like my job is all about it wasn't Colonel Mustard in the candle with the candlestick in the study. And I'm like, yeah, don't you I, bring clue don't into this. Don't you dare. How very dare How you, sir. How dare you. How very dare you. Like, don't you do this. I know. 
I know, but you know, he's saying that they do a toxicology test, but they only test for alcohol. It was negative. He was negative for HIV and hepatitis B. So, you know, I think what they're trying to say is there's not a ton that you can go on just based on the autopsy. Right. So the family just full stop will not accept that Scott took his own life. Yeah. And the cops told the press that there were like no suspicious circumstances and the family is just appalled by this. Yeah. So like Steve is just saying like. What I decided to do next was try to retrace Scott's steps. And I caught the ferry out to Manly. Like, if they're not going to do an investigation, I'm going to do an investigation. He's in Australia. Why not? On the other professor's dime, why not do this? I have had a friend who was from Australia. And when she would visit, she would go for like three weeks at a time. Because she's like, honestly, Jillian, that flight. Oh, yeah. The trip there, it's not worth it if you go for any less than like That's how I feel going to fucking Phoenix. Yeah, like, she's like, I'm taking off for a month. Like, if I'm here, I'm here. Totally. So I feel like part of it seems like, well, it's took me all this time to get here. It took, and, me, it took this horrible thing for me to get here. I'm going to solve this fucking crime. You know, like if I'm going to be exactly. So Steve decides he's going to retrace Scott's final steps and route to tracing his final steps. He marches back into the police station. Yeah. Sees Troy again. Troy goes, Steve was very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Passionate in his belief that Scott did not die by suicide. Right. Steve's like, uh, look, this was not suicide and I'm going to prove it to you. Hold tight. And he's also just saying, like, I don't believe that Scott would have killed himself without saying goodbye. Like, he's like, he has a brand new niece. He would have wanted to at least have spoken to his niece. This right. doesn't make any sense. So Steve goes to see Michael, Scott's partner. And yeah. they go for a walk. I've got some questions about this story. Great. Yeah. So the story goes, and Steve is our main narrator here. So yeah. like Michael's not here and just, you know. So Steve says, I wanted to ask Michael what was going on in their lives. Like trying to get some more information. Were you fighting? Were you in the middle of a breakup? Like there are no wrong answers here. Yeah. No one's mad. I'm just trying to see like the cops aren't doing it. I kind of have to do it. Michael, like what's the deal? And he ran inside his house and told his parents that I had accused him of killing Scott. His mother came out and told me I was no longer welcome at the house. I think temperatures rose. I think so. Because, like, you know, we learned, Steve is saying, like, did you guys break up? Was there someone else? Did you have a fight? Did you have an open relationship? Do you yeah. care that he was up there? Is it a cruising spot? Steve telling the story now yes. is a little calmer than I think what it would be. I would think Steve would be in a panic, in a heartbroken panic. Yes. And because Steve seems very calm to us now. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would, like, freak out. But I think... I think if it's all hitting him at once in Michael's neighborhood as they're going right. on a walk around the block or whatever, like, I have to solve this and I only have a week to do it. And what is not being mentioned here is Scott's previous experience with suicidal ideation. Yes. So I don't know, like, if Michael told Steve that. Like, we only heard about that from the cops. Right. So I don't know where that really came from, but it's a pretty specific yeah. thing. Like, he had ideas on the Golden Gate Bridge. Like, that's kind of... Yeah. I don't know. But and I think it got, I think Michael was like, there's, I don't know. I don't right. know. And Steve desperately needed information and Michael didn't have any. And like, now we're in tears. And why wouldn't you be? And we're also not considering Michael's feelings. He just like, like the love of his life. He just lost him. Like, right. and he doesn't even know how, or he thinks it was suicide. And maybe he thinks it was his fault. We're not even taking Michael's we're not. feelings into consideration nope. here. I think everyone, I think it's a little heightened and I'm not really sure. So Steve goes back to the States and he becomes more and more obsessed with the case. He says, I spent the month of December typing up the notes I had learned in Sydney. And he makes a checklist of what needs to be done. Like yeah. who and what the cops need to investigate. And he sends a 50-page document to the police department in Australia. Yeah. Now, meanwhile... Okay. Pull over for privilege, everyone. Yeah. Privilege so pullover. This is where you start to understand why we have four episodes of this. Yeah. My best friend, Chris Grace had gone into city politics and had gotten to know Senator Ted Kennedy. And so Ted Kennedy sent 
a letter to the ambassador in Australia inquiring about Scott's death. It wasn't like I was bullying or going overboard. I just want to know about why my brother died. Now, Scott died in December. Yeah. Ted Kennedy sends the letter on February 7th. That same month, that same February, Australia is like, we're going to do an inquest. Yeah. Next month, we're yeah. uh, doing an inquest. Now, Steve learns that this inquest was supposed to happen anyway. Uh-huh. But Steve is the type of person who can get Ted Kennedy to send a letter to the ambassador of Australia. Now, this happens before Steve has money because Steve's about to become a multimillionaire. Right. But remember, Steve went to Harvard. Yes. This is how he knows influential people like this. And I'm just saying, I'm glad that we get to the bottom of this. But it does shine a light on the level of privilege you have to have oh, yeah. to get things done. Done, yes, you 100%. know, which is so enraging. And this, with all, we're going to learn about the absolute level of privilege they have. Yeah, and it still took thirty years. Yeah, and it's yeah. still shitty. Yes, exactly. So it's like insane. And fi- eventually, like through the four episodes, I'm like, is someone going to say it? I and know. Finally, I towards know. the end, we start talking about it. But I'm like, it's right. It's, it's the right biggest. There. It's the, it's a fucking gold elephant in the room. We got to talk about it. Exactly. There's a billion dollar elephant in the right. room. <laughs> Can we discuss it for five minutes? But we learned that inquest that happens in February, nothing changes. The coroner still finds that Scott died by suicide, quote, because there was nothing to indicate otherwise. That doesn't seem like enough reason. But then he also gets personal. He's like, not only is there no forensic evidence, there's previous suicidal ideations. He's introverted. He's smart. Quote, these are the types of people who take their own lives. It's wild. Okay. And they say that was the last official act on Scott's case for more than 20 years. So over those 20 years, the family grieves the best way they can. They move on the best way they can. They're all just fucking doing their best. They, right? they start to blame themselves, of course. Right. Meaning, that, like, I think that's a natural instinct. It's not real well, or true. Well, because all they're, all they're doing, it's just 20 years of questions yeah. and fury and rage and And it's in sadness. another country. Like, it's so far away. Like, it's final and it's dismissive and you're yeah. angry and you're sad. It's just a lot. In 1990, my wife's pregnant with our second child. And I'm interested in this new computer revolution. So I started tinkering in my garage. A movie professor friend said that George Lucas had recently been on campus, and George Lucas said, in the future, movie theaters will be receiving movies digitally, not on celluloid in cans. And George Lucas is like, everyone needs to start panicking about this right away. <laughs> we all have to start thinking about digital compression. God damn it. I know. And it's true. And Steve just says, like, this was a problem that I, I figured out that I could solve. Solve. The, like, that program that he wrote with Scott about yes. solving any problem. Like, this is where Steve and Scott thrive. So Steve starts working on this. And Rose is saying, like, we were so broke, but Steve just kept saying, like, I have an idea. I think it's going to be a good idea. So Steve and his friend, this engineering guy, start a company together called Johnson Grace. Like, they start to, like, tinker and solve the problem. So they, like, form this company. Oh, and yes. they're they're broke solving the... Yeah. Like, starting a company, like, is a lot of money. Yes. And they're doing something where ju- they're just, like, tinkering in the garage. And Rose is like, God, please. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Please let this <laughs> anything, be the thing. Anything, Please. So, 1993, America Online is a thing. And, yes. like, it... Now it's just a website, but children, it used to be an app. Like, that used to be the way you got online to, like, yes. chat and stuff, right? Yes, yes. And so they're saying, like, when you would turn on your dial-up, your America Online dial-up, and you're trying to download anything, a picture of anything from anywhere, it would take, like, 90 minutes to get a full picture. Steve and his partner came up with an algorithm that made that process six seconds, which I know even now sounds like an eternity. Right. But when it went from 90 minutes to six seconds, all of a sudden, the inter- he basically made the internet work. This attracted the attention of America Online. They licensed my technology for a lot of money. Good morning, America Online. And enabled me and Chris to hire a few people and feed our families. The relationship with America Online was was a very, very productive one. America Online bought the company in 96, and then I went on 
to run their R&D division for the rest of the decade. And in 1996, AOL buys this company, Johnson Grace. I looked it up. Tell me. So they bought it for about 1.6 million shares or roughly $72.8 million, which is about $142 million today. Oh, my God. So Is America Online still worth anything? I know it's a website. Uh (laughs) I know know people of a certain age who have uh, AOL.com email. No, not shares. Email addresses. So, like, I don't think it can go out of business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still a certain generation who has... As AOL I mean, it seems very much like he, Steve knew what to do with his money. I think he's doing just fine. Well, he's doing incredible. I mean, $142 million. Yeah. I mean, come on. I know. So, you know, and Steve says this thing, like, it was the golden age for nerds and my brother missed it. Yes. And, like, remember, they were, whatever that program was that they had that could solve any problem, like, holy shit. Like, I really yeah. do think that could have changed everything. Changed everything. And, like, Steve ended up doing it anyway by making this algorithm that AOL bought. And that's how we're here because Steve has all this money to personally finance this investigation. Because at first you're like, okay, cool. So the guy's loaded. Uh-huh. And then you're like, oh. oh he's like internet loaded. <laughs> no, like he's a billionaire. Yeah, exactly. Like a millionaire. So all these years later, years and years later, Michael, Scott's boyfriend, sends an article to Steve. Because they, they're saying for like all that time in between, it, the case was quiet. For 20 right. years, there was nothing. And Rosemary says this thing. She goes, and then Michael, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. He sends an article to Steve. And I just loved that moment that yeah. she had to be like, oh, if not like, oh my God. Because it's like, it's I a guess, real, real human moment. Google alerts wasn't a thing or something I yet. Because not. like without Michael sending this How article. Steve not invent his own I Google know. alert? <laughs> I know. I know. Because like without Michael sending that article, we wouldn't be here. So here's what the article is. Yeah. It's an article about how gay men are showing up at the bottoms of cliffs. And then the quote is, and then everything started again. Yes. So it's three gay men, John Russell, Ross Warren, and Gilles Matheny. Uh-huh. So they're all gay. They have no connection to each yep. other. But this article is theorizing that they're all victims of hate crimes. Yes. And this changes everything. Yes. And so th- the multi, multi-millionaire yes. with a little bit of a lead here who has like an axe to grind with the, the cops <laughs> yes. in Australia and like justice for his brother. Holy shit. Here we go. Like That's going to be episode two. We are off and running. Oh, fam, thank you for checking out episode one of Never Let Him Go. The other three episodes are available right now and ad-free over on the Patreon. We get an answer to this mystery. We do, which rarely happens. I know. You know, because we kind of start at the end in this episode, and then it's like the whole journey, and then by the end of the series, we, yeah. we have some answers. It's one of those series that everybody was watching it when it came out, and yes. then like our people were like clamoring for us to do it. It's we true. like couldn't do it quick. It's we like true. move the schedule around to get this done. Absolutely. It's really great. It's a great mystery, but it's also like a great love story between these two brothers yeah, and the family. Yeah, family. And, and, it's amazing. Yeah. So thanks for checking this out, fam. Yeah, Merry Everything. Stay safe out there. Happy 2024. Yeah. Oh, it's almost New Year's Eve. It's almost. So be safe, everyone. Yeah, be safe. Be careful. We need you. We love you. We need you. We love you. Exactly. <laughs> All right, bye. All right, bye. 